The Oracle Network. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth, from cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries These stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Jury Room Aftermath. On this episode, I'm really excited about my guest and what she's doing and what she's accomplishing in such a short time. I have the host of How to Spot a Killer. Welcome to the show. Why don't you introduce yourself and your podcast and where they can find you at? Hi, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So my name's Lynette. I'm the host of How to Spot a Killer, the podcast. Like uh, the Jury Room Room podcast, it is a true crime podcast that examines um, cases from the standpoint of a former prosecutor. Um, So I I was in the courtroom. I got to see some of these horrifying cases uh, for myself. And once I left criminal law, I wanted to do you know, to still feel connected to these cases and to analyze them as someone who's now just kind of part of the regular citizenry, you know. Um, And I guess my biggest motivation in starting my podcast was how do I avoid becoming a victim? And how do I take my experiences in the courtroom as limited as they were um, to help prepare myself and friends and people like me from being victimized? And so I started How to Spot a Killer to just look at cases, examine red flags, talk about escalating behavior, um, behavior similar, you know, to what we saw in the Genesee River Killer case, um, and break that down in a way that we can look at a case from a different standpoint, honor the victims and learn from those stories so that, you know, we can remain living. So I would love for you to check me out. I'm available wherever you get your podcasts, but I also have a video version on YouTube. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. No, thanks for coming on, Lynette. Mm-hmm. And I definitely am a huge fan of yours. I'm glad you're here. I'm super excited to have you on. Well, as you know, I've been listening to you a long time, so I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> so from being now that you're out of criminal law, how do, do you look at things maybe a little bit different since you have that perspective? Can you recognize those patterns a little bit faster than maybe somebody else? I do, and I don't necessarily think so. I will say, um, you know, I always heard this thing, when you go to law school, it's going to teach you how to think so much differently than you usually think, you know, and I never believed that until I actually was in law school. And once I graduated, I think criminal law opened my mind in a way that I've never experienced before. Um, I currently work in a different area of the law. Um, I work for an organization, and it is very different from what I did in the criminal law sector in that you're kind of thrown in as a new grad, as a new licensed attorney, and you're just given 300 cases, a big pile of cases, and you're told to kind of figure it out. And, you know, I want to say within uh, six or seven months after joining the DA's office, I had my first homicide. And so you're exposed very early to jury trials and um, criminal matters. And it just gives you a, a way of kind of thinking a step ahead. It's like real life chess, where you're always trying to think, well, what's this person going to argue? How do I put myself in the victim's shoes without necessarily taking on the grief, without losing focus of the, you know, the point of defending them right now in their story. How do I connect with jurors? Your mind is always going a mile a minute. You know, it's, it's insane. Um, 
I don't necessarily think that that experience made me think differently or quicker than anyone else, but it definitely opened my eyes as a person. It helped me think differently for my former self. Um, I think there's a lot of people who, you know, Kevin, as you know, listen to true crime podcasts. They watch a lot of true crime episodes. Um, we've got so many Netflix true crime documentaries, right? And that's because people are fascinated by these stories. How can regular Joe across the street commit such a crime? You know, we're fascinated by that. And I think as a society, we went from a community of people who could go next door and borrow a cup of sugar, um, let your kids roam around outside. I don't have kids myself, but you know, that type of era when people could walk around until the, the streetlights came on. And now we've got a situation where you're realizing that you don't know the people who are living around you. And so I think anyone who's able to listen to their gut, who's able to know that there's something off about someone, people who have the ability to see red flags, even from a young age, are so far ahead of the rest of us who are kind of analyzing this as we go, which is like me, you know, I'm learning as I go, I'm researching as I go, I don't have those natural instincts. Kevin, I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I was born and raised in Zimbabwe, which is in Southern Africa. And um, Zimbabwe is a very peaceful country. Um, There's so many wonderful people. But from a cultural perspective, I was raised to be respectful to everyone, um, regardless of who they were. What I loved about, you know, being Americanized, in quotes, was I got to hear people saying, hey, hey, don't talk to strangers. Don't you dare say, you know, or if you have a creepy uncle, um, you know, I think American uh, families kind of teach the don't don't you dare talk to so and so like that. I mean, um, you know, not not don't you dare talk to so and so like that. Like if so and so is giving you the creep, step away from them. You know, tell me if someone th- does something that makes you uncomfortable. I kind of grew up, yes, with that kind of those types of conversations, but there was such a huge focus on respect, respecting your elders, and I think that kind of also set me back a little bit. Because now I I was kind of stifling that gut instinct at times, you know, there were times it was more important to be respectful than to pay attention to that. Well, this person's giving me the creeps. I should cross the street. The individual who's asking me to talk to them or they're asking for directions is not making me feel comfortable. So from a cultural perspective, I had to kind of unlearn all of that in order to be able to prioritize my own safety. I don't think that's the walk of every Zimbabwean, but I know that sometimes different cultures and different upbringings can make us less um, can make us more naive, is what I will say. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of factors I think that can make someone much more capable of spotting a killer. But unfortunately, mine were all learned in my adult years. <laughs> what? With that being said, so with the cult, with the with the huge cultural differences, was it a huge shock for you when you did like get your first homicide to see that dark side of humanity? You know, it was, but unfortunately, I did see the dark side of humanity at a very young age. You know, I grew up in a country where there was some corruption, there was some political corruption, and you see the dehumanization of people during that. You know, you see the prioritization of certain classes over others. Um, You know, for those people who, you know, have time after listening to your podcast, you can search online and see some of the horrible crimes that were committed against Uh, individuals who are white by a black president who um, hated white people. You know, he felt that black Zimbabweans were suppressed and were not given the opportunities that they should have been because of colonization. And so I got to see um, from a very young age, the mistreatment of other people. And I think it really definitely, um, 
it kind of prepared me, I think, in a sense, for walking into the DA's office and seeing these crimes. You know, I remember it was very different, though, than watching Dateline and you see some of these criminal, um, you know, the, the photos come up on, on TV or the blurred out pictures or you go onto Reddit and you see um, some of these pictures on some of these subreddits. And here I am with the case of a real life human being who was gunned down in front of a church, you know, um, it was very, very different. I remember coming home and being haunted a little bit by that, you know, uh, a lot of it actually laying in bed and just thinking about the pictures from the autopsy. Um, so it was very different. It's very real when you're in an, in the opportunity or in a position to prosecute than it is from when you're kind of taking a backseat as a reader or a viewer. Um, so nothing could have prepared me for that. However, I do feel like I have always seen or witnessed the dehumanization of other people, unfortunately, which I guess made me a, a, an even better prosecutor, hopefully. <laughs> Uh, with that being said, like if what made you get away from prosecuting people and then into what you're doing now? So unfortunately, and this is something that breaks my heart, but prosecuting is my dream job. I've always loved to prosecute. And so for those listeners who are listening to my voice and obviously might not have seen me, I'm a black woman. And, you know, as a minority, um, it was very challenging for me to be a prosecutor because here, you know, we're in the midst of George Floyd. We're in the midst of all of this racial tension in the United States. And um, it was it was challenging for me, but I also recognized that representation matters, you know. And so I, I was in a fortunate position in that I was in an office where I was permitted to um, you know, we hear of the word withdraw, dismiss cases, but it's called null processing, for example. And I could null process a case where there wasn't enough facts. I could talk to the DA himself and say, hey, this just doesn't seem to match up with um, uh, the, the charges or these facts don't seem to line up or something is missing. This evidence, the labs came back, whatever it is. And I was in a, in a position where I could analyze and, and recognize that mistakes happen in the criminal justice system. It's not a perfect system. So it was difficult for me to leave. But as with so many counties, you'll hear about people who are attorneys um, who are prosecuting by day and maybe driving um, Uber or um, delivering at night or working shifts at grocery stores or bartending, whatever it is, because um, in a lot of states, prosecuting doesn't pay you enough to keep the lights on. It doesn't pay you enough to, to pay your bills, you know, and so um it's one of the difficulties, and I think, you know, in, in your podcast, you were talking about, in the last episode of the Genesee River Killer, you were talking about how at some point, you know, there was a decision that was made to release um, Shawcross, and, you know, it was against the psychologist's recommendation. I think a lot of the types of mistakes that we see or the judgments or the, mis the errors that are made are because we don't have enough staffing, we don't have enough funding, we don't have enough um, space in our prisons for a lot of these individuals sometimes. And so people who are well-behaved during that period of time end up getting out because there's just not enough people to really analyze and um, really work on these situations. We have so many prosecutors, but thousands and thousands of case files being handled by, by uh, you know, a, a set number of people. And so I left because it was a lot of work and I still wasn't making enough to, to, to pay my bills, you know, and I knew I had to make the decision to um, put my finances first before my passion, unfortunately. So I am in a better position now, but my hope is to save, um, to do what I can so that I could hopefully one day go back to it. 
Um, or perhaps maybe this podcast will open up doors for me to still be able to advocate for victims in a different lens, you know, in a different way. So, you know, I, I think like many prosecutors, perhaps prosecutors, prosecutors who are like me who are alone and might not have family members or other people to kind of share those bills with, it kind of fell on me to figure out I have to find something else to make this work so that I can keep doing what I'm doing and keep living and, and surviving. <laughs> No, that's, I mean, that's fascinating. I, I could talk to you about this forever and just listen <laughs> to you talk. So, um, and I just want to keep asking you questions about it. Last question about it. And then oh, please. we'll Absolutely. move on to the episode. Obviously for, you gotta, you have to protect everybody involved, but what would be, I think the craziest case that you ever had to prosecute that you went home at, at that night and you're like, holy fuck, that was insane. So, you know, and that's the thing. So I was in the DA's office for two years. One of those years as a prosecutor, one of those years as a legal intern. Prior to that, I'd just done government work. And so I have such a limited experience. But I do recall, and I wasn't the one prosecuting that case, but I was sitting in this courtroom, and um, there was an individual. He was, I mean, a very young kid, 19, 20 years old, I think. Um, he might have been a little older than that. And he had a friend, uh, this female who, um, you know, they've been best friends, good friends. And one day um, she had she'd been homeless and this poor girl had been working so hard to save for a car and she finally got that car. Well, this guy, defendant, um, had a friend and they decided, you know what, we're going to rob this girl and we're going to take her car, a friend of his. And so they ask her to meet up and if she can drive them around. And of course, this is her buddy. She wants to show him, you know, this wonderful car that she's worked so hard to secure. And so he hops into the car with her. He's in the um, back seat. His friend's in the passenger seat. And um, as she's driving, all of a sudden he pulls a gun out and he points it at her head and tells her to stop the vehicle. And these two did not have a condom. And so they took a plastic bag and they raped this poor girl with a plastic bag, left the plastic bag under the car, beat her. I mean, just it was a brutal beating and left her there. And so, you know, I think she'd fought so hard to keep the key. But I think what was so shocking was not even the facts of the case, but in the courtroom on the day of sentencing, the victim is sitting next to me in court. And um, her boyfriend is sitting next to me and the defendant's in chains. He's sitting in front of us. He's getting up to walk out of the courtroom and I could hear the boyfriend of the victim kind of mumbling. And I knew something was going on. You know, you, you can sense there's a lot of tension in the courtroom and she's, she's crying. She's a mess, clearly and understandably. Um, she's emotional. Um, and the, the defendant has no remorse. So as he's walking by with, with chains, the sheriffs are walking and, and holding him. And... The, the victim's boyfriend looks at this guy and they exchanged words. I don't remember exactly what was said, but the defendant spat the biggest. And I think Amer like I'm an American citizen now, so I should stop saying I think Americans called it. Um, I think, <laughs> what is it, a luggy? What is, Kevin, is oh, it a loogie? A loogie. Very disgusting. So disgusting. I see the spit come out of the defendant's mouth. And it hits the boyfriend in the face. And of course, there's a you know little barrier stopping them in the courtroom. But this guy went flying over that um, barrier towards the defendant and they just start, you know, he's pummeling the defendant whose arms are chained. Um, out of nowhere, the defendant's sister who's somewhere behind me jumps out, you know, and, and she starts fighting and she's jumping in. 
The prosecutor at the time was a very seasoned. She's been prosecuting for 20 something years, jumps out and she's trying to hold, you know, the defendant's sister and the defendant's mom. It was the wildest thing I've ever seen in my life. Jerry, Jerry. Yes, very much Jerry Springer. (laughs) You know, it was, you know, and here I am like just starting out in my legal internship and I'm thinking this is going to be great. And I was so surprised by how raw those emotions are. And I think we've all seen videos of like a dad at a sentencing or at a victim impact statement um, where he's talking, but you know, you can tell this person wants to beat the shit out of the defendant, beat the crap, I'm sorry. No, Um, you're good. Okay. (laughs) Okay, good, good. But yeah, I mean, um, one of the most shocking things, I went home and I was just kind of, the adrenaline took so long to like, you know, but it was such a good reminder that holy crap, like these emotions, this tension doesn't end after the person is sentenced. Um, This tension will remain forever and ever as long as that defendant is alive and as long as, you know, they're unapologetic, unsympathetic, um, as long as that victim is breathing, that story, um, that crime will haunt them and everyone they love, you know, and it was, it was so shocking to see firsthand. Right. It's, it's one of those things that, and that's why, you know, in the, in the true crime space, you have to make sure that you're, you're being respectful because that is literally the worst day of that person's life was when she was brutally raped and attacked for what a, a vehicle. You exactly. Know, and, and this is why I respect your podcast so much and so many other similar podcasters like yourself, because you take a much more respectful and sympathetic approach. You know, it's not, And I think sometimes people almost, it becomes the sexualization of true crime, right? Like people want it to be juicy and tasty and, you know, like, how do I spice this content up? Like, and then he sliced her throat and then he drank, you know, like they become so like juicy, 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 juicy. And we forget that there could be someone out there, a kid, someone who was um, maybe a, a month or two old at the time of these killings, who is going to be exposed to these crimes how do we allow them to see their parent as more than just a body? You know, how do we allow them to see the parent as a survivor, as someone who could have survived, who fought for their life, you know? And um, it's, it's so important to remember to, to, to be, to give honest facts, but, you know, to, to remember that there's still people out there who are being impacted by this crime and generations that'll be impacted as well after all 30 minutes of recording are over, you know? So, um, I, I, this is exactly why I respect you and why I'm so excited to be a part of and to share the podcast space that you share, because I think the way you tell stories is so important. And I hope a lot more people start to, um, to move towards that, that honest, um, respectful storytelling as well. And that's, you know, you brought something up, the, the, the sexualization of true crime is beyond fucking grotesque. Like it's so like I, I've said it and I'll say it until the fucking day I die. I will never cover Ted Bundy ever um, because uh, it's gross. It's it just, it, it's really irritating that people have, we've come to a place where we have put these serial killers up on a pedestal 100%. and we're like, oh my God, they're so hot. I'd fuck yeah. them. And it's yeah. like, bruh. It's almost become a personality trait, you know, like, you know, almost like, okay, so I'm, I am this person who is, I'm, I'm just so out there. I'm so cool because I'm not afraid of horror, but you know, that, that seems to be sometimes what they almost portray it as is like this whole, I'm such a cool cat because I'm not afraid of true crime. In fact, I'm, I'm sexually attracted to these killers. You know, it is, 
Oh my gosh. Shocking, shocking, shocking beyond words, especially when you think about the facts of the case that you covered um, in the Genesee River case. Like just imagining someone cutting someone's vagina off and eating it and then imagine going home and going, wow, 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 can't wait to <laughs> lay in bed with that guy. You know what I mean? No, there's no laying in bed in that guy. He's going to kill you. <laughs> People are insane. <laughs> oh my God. So speaking of that, had you heard of this guy before you listened to the episode? You know, it's been a very long time. So it was so great to listen to this podcast. And I remember the case because I had listened to it in a previous podcast a couple of years ago. But what I specifically remember was the arrest resulting from him being on the bridge, you know, whether it was urinating or masturbating at the the, the point where the victim was. What's so crazy about this case is I lived, um, what I loved about your uh, covering of this case is I got to see it in a different lens. When I listened to this podcast before, you know, the one that covered this case many years ago, I didn't really focus on a lot of the facts like I did when I was listening to your podcast in this case, right? Um, for example, it never dawned on me that this guy, you know, of course, it's the Genesee River, right? New York. Um, I, I lived a, uh, an hour and a half away from, an hour and 50 minutes away from Rochester um, in 2009 and 2010. And so it was so interesting to me to think about that from that perspective, you know, because it's a very quiet area um, for the most part. And you have this guy who's left a stamp in that area and that community for decades. Um, so as much as I had heard it before, I got to see it and to hear about it in a different lens. And even after listening to the podcast episode, kind of going through and seeing pictures, I wanted to see pictures of him and, um, you know, just to kind of put a face to this monster. It was wild uh, getting to, to hear a lot about the marriages and the um his uh, time of service, if we want to call it that in quotes, I don't know who he was serving, but um, you know, it was, it was, yes, very much himself. It was great to hear from your perspective as far as the way you told the story in your, your podcast episode. Right. And that's, you know, it's crazy to think that somebody could be so mean. And it's one of those things that, you know, like he was bullied as a child and, and it, bullying has a profound effect on people. And I, and I, I know that, you know, I know that from personal experience, yes, as I'm yes, sure you were picked true. on as a yes, kid. Yes. Um, so it's one of those things that I understand that, you know, people have, you know, people have trauma, but at the same time, it's like, we don't all go out and kill people because of 100%. it. hundred percent. You know, when, when I was um, sitting down preparing for this episode, I kind of put together a couple of like bullets of things that I saw, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, obviously my, my uh, hope is to identify red flags, right? Like, so um, we have the rape by the ant. We have the experimentation at the little bit, you know, and I, I know that in when I was listening to it, he had an interest in both boys and girls, that oral experimentation, but then you have the bestiality. I was, I almost dropped my phone when I was listening to your podcast and you were talking about the, the chicken that ended up dying. I didn't even want to think about what he was doing that's, to that chicken. You know what I mean? That's a whole other uh, aspect of choking the chicken, right? Right. This was wild. <laughs> this guy had, there was no line. There was literally no line. And, you know, it was so, what I loved, and it was almost like the theme of your podcast episode, the constant attention seeking. It was never enough. We have the the childhood never enough. I, I need more attention. We have the um, the author of his youth never enough. We have the author in um, 
Vietnam. It's not enough attention. We have the Arthur Post sentencing with the paintings. It's never enough attention. So I saw that as a consistent, um, and I don't know if you meant to do that, but I saw it as a consistent like theme of your episode that this was an attention seeker from the gate. And I think one of the biggest things is he was a pathological liar, right? So we have an individual who, like you said, was bullied as a child. Most of us, I know I was bullied as a child, but we then don't go and then um, bully other children to the extent that Arthur Shawcross did, right? So he's making other kids cry um, and hate their lives because he's so miserable. But not only that, we have an individual who is... Um, taking out his frustration because of the abuse on other people, it would be one thing if it was like, okay, you know, we've read of cases where children who are sexually abused end up then replicating those, um, you know, what they're doing with the abuser with other children, right? But he was going beyond that. And I think one of the tipping points or the turning points was when you were in your podcast, you talked about um, the, the, the guy who stopped when Arthur was walking down the street from school and he asked him to get into the car and then while he was giving him oral sex, he pulls a, I think he pulled a gun or a knife. A knife. A knife on him. Neck. Exactly. And that prevented Arthur from um, orgasming. And it, it's almost like now he associated that traumatic event with this desire now for control. Maybe he felt like he lost control, but he could not then ejaculate if he was not inflicting pain on others. And so this was an individual who was, I mean, his life was filled with abuse. We see both of the marriages. Um, we see the horrific crimes in Vietnam. We see the horrific um, behavior in um, e e even just the, the the audacity of being able to have conjugal visits <laughs> when he was incarcerated, right? Like, yeah, this that's is someone up. who's done whatever he wanted without with very little consequence. I think, um, back to your point about an individual who is capable of you know, harming other people after being bullied. He could have been someone we could have empathized for, right, and been sympathetic to, but he always went beyond. It was like a a, a ladder, you know. He went from one thing to the next. You could see him gradually escalating. It's This really goes to the um, nature versus nurture discussion. Like, was he always like this? I loved at the end of your podcast episode how you were analyzing some of what was seen as far as the damage to his brain and to his head, I think, um, as far as whether or not this was he potentially was that a part of why he was the way he was, that parts of his brain that um, deal with certain uh, actions, you know, are very different from the typical human brain, you know. But I will say, I, I think the attention seeking has a lot to do with it. Um, I, you talked about Rose, and I think that was his fourth wife. And that spouse was you know, during that period of time where he wasn't killing or wasn't, you know, committing crimes. Um, and one thing that kept on hitting me was, you know, when you think about, um, oh my gosh, what was that case? Uh, oh man, BTK. Oh my goodness. When you think about BTK and you have all of these men and there's certain serial killers who have had dormant periods, right? Where they don't do anything. And I think there's this idea where people are like, oh my gosh, like if only this woman had stayed with him, you know, if only so-and-so had remained with them. Uh, we think about the Golden State Killer. Um, I forget the name of the woman specifically who he was so in love with. 
and where when he was raping some of the women, he would yell out her name. And people, you know, I think there was this idea where people were like, oh, if they only stayed with this person, things would have been fine. But it is not the responsibility of the spouse to fix this person. These people are sometimes just in a period of dormancy, but that urge to kill, that desire for blood, and you used the word bloodlust in your episode, and it was so profound to me because that desire to kill will always be there. Um, what I know this is going to sound so ridiculous, but a couple of days ago, and I'm not sure if I posted about this on Twitter, but I had just recently, for the first time, just got into Halloween, <laughs> Mike Michael Myers movies, and I spe I specifically listened, I specifically watched the late, you know, the 2000s Michael Myers by Rob Zombie. I think that's the the director. Now, what I thought was so fascinating is that when you're looking at the two, I think it's 2003 Halloween movie, you have this young kid. He's bullied. He's strange. He's abusing animals. The mom is looking at him like he's the perfect kid. He's got this mask on. And all of a sudden you have these um, pictures, these little Polaroid photographs of all the animals that he has killed and, you know, the cats that he's destroyed. And you've got a mother who's like, what? He loves animals. And it hit me so hard when you talked about this guy's wife, a scientist, a scientist who was not willing to accept that her husband needed help because... You know, and this this is why it shows you that sometimes these people can go undetected, even by the most intelligent spouses, by children, um, because how could this person that I'm sleeping next to be such a monster? How could they do such things, you know? Um, and what people fail to realize, yes, therapy is so much more than sitting down on a couch, Kevin, and saying, Yes, I got problems. Exactly. Right. I want to kill people. And and then the therapist goes, well, how do you feel about that? Well, I want to kill people. No, no, it's so much more than you that. You asking me that makes me want to kill people. Makes me want to kill people. You know, in fact, maybe I'll right. kill you, you know, but this goes so far beyond just the, the, the discussion of what's going on in that person's psyche, but there's medication. And also there is the ability to analyze as far as trauma. Okay. So you're feeling this desire to do this. Like this guy, Arthur, um, raped, potentially raped and killed two children, right? The, the, when he spent the, the 15 years in- They in, were never um, confirmed, but it was, it's, it's his, that's what he confessed to. Exactly, right? So potentially this is someone who killed two children, a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old. And, you know, okay, so what would take, what would make someone- do something like that what is so fucked up in that head that would make him so going through that trauma as a child i think potentially helped these individuals my heart definitely did break when you were talking about how arthur now there was a period of time where he couldn't find a job he couldn't stay in the neighborhood no one wanted him there but you know unfortunately kevin we think about these things this is these are the consequences of being a sexual predator. And even with being a, a repeated sexual offender, um, that's unfortunately the cross that some of these individuals have to burn because I think as a society, we recognize that this is not just a uh, sexual preference. This is not just a, um, uh, a kink. You know, these, these are very disturbed individuals who, who children cannot consent, you know? And not only was this guy sexually abusing people, but then he, he was killing them, you know? And one thing that I found very disturbing was his ability, just like BTK, to talk in his confession 
I mean, so freely and so disengaged. It was like, finally, I can talk about this incredible feat that I've managed to accomplish. You know, they take pride in these killings. Um, when you look at a mugshot of young Arthur Shawcross, he's not an ugly guy, you know, very good looking guy. Um, but not in the honor. Oh, don't worry. I'm not one of these. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Sign me up for a freaking author. Um, Shawcross, the vagina eater. Um, he was just very much like, you know, it, it goes back to the, what does a killer look like? Right. A lot of people, I think, seem to imagine um, this guy with the huge comb over and the large rimmed glass, you know, those big circular ones. and Like a know, John Wayne Gacy type. Yes, thing. 100%. Driving the station wagon, you'll pull up and, you know, no. The, some of these guys With the look, van that says not a serial killer. Exactly. But really exactly. Or sometimes maybe the free candy van. But <laughs> a lot of these guys, you would not expect them to look like this. And Arthur Shawcross is so interesting. And I, I'd love to get your perspective on this because how many times do you hear about a killer who was experimenting freely with both genders with male and female individuals um and i think at one point in the episode you talked about how he may have engaged with sen in sexual intercourse with even a sister a sibling you know um i think you know with him with him being so young when like his the, the problem with a lot of like, especially with sexual offenders is, and I'm not, I'm no expert by any stretch of the means, but in patterns that you see within people is when they experience sexual trauma at such a young age, right? We're, we're melding our personalities, right? From the time we're born until we're forever, our personalities are always changing. But when you're learning who you are and something like that happens, so the aunt raping him, you know, potentially raping him, even though the family denies that it happened, especially at an age where your hormones are raging the most, where, where literally, you know, I can attest to this as, as being a 14 year old boy, literally the breeze in the wind is like, Oh my God. Like, you know what I mean? And so. It imprints on you as well. All of those, ex all of those experiences you're having at such an impressionable age are imprinting on you. And, and formulating exactly. what your interests are going to be as well, you know? And so that and the, I hate to say this, and I'm glad that we've come further than where we were, but it's also a sign of the time, right? It, you are, you, you know, back in the day, even though homosexuality has been around for ever, right? Years it's and years, years yeah. and years, right? But it was, if you were homosexual or if you had homosexual tendencies or you had homosexual thoughts, like you were looked down on, you were beaten. If you came like were flamboyant with your sexuality of, of being gay, you were beaten, you know? And that, and so I think a lot of these killers, especially the, the sexual predators, they struggle with who they are, their sexuality because they, you know, they, I think some of them are, you know, they, they, they want to be gay, but they hate who that person is because their dad probably caught them, you know, in a barn somewhere with, with one of their friends and beat the shit out of them. And, and so then they're like, you know, it, it, it changes that, that dynamic. And then they hate that part of themselves. And so they're always trying to you know, run away from it. You know what I mean? 100%. And, you know, I think it goes back to suppression, right? Like, um, 
you're 100% right. Thank goodness we're finally, and I know we still have a long way to go, but we went from a society of individuals who, you know, you wrote with your left hand, you were getting your hand beaten, you know, people beat the crap out of that left hand until you're writing with your right. And, you know, um, when you suppress an individual who naturally maybe has an attraction to other men or naturally, you know, has an attraction to other, whatever it is, like, um, or doesn't identify with the gender. And when you suppress that and you bring shame upon that, um, that individual, when you see individuals like Arthur Cross and, and they're now fighting their own desire, their own urges to have sex with a woman, if that's not something that he wants to do, there's this anger there, you know, and right. it just that's doesn't, hostility. there's a hostility towards, well, you know, we see this guy who by all means does not seem like someone who's going to be a happy dad at home, who, you know, his first wife, he gives up his parental rights, never sees his kid again, you know. This is an individual who was not looking for a family life and yet continued to get married, was still married in prison, you know. Um, but I, I 100%, yeah, I still believe, you wonder sometimes, oh my gosh, like how is it possible that these prisoners are getting so many letters in the mail and people can't get texts back? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> what is going on in the world? Ghosted. Right, exactly. What is, there's no excuse to be ghosting <laughs> when people like Arthur Cross were getting married in prison and sex on a regular basis. It's bizarre. Oh so I, I do feel like, you know, it has to do with that. It's this idea that people don't realize when you, speak shame on a child when you sodomize a child if those allegations were true about him at a young age um you know our hope is to believe victims but you know we have only author cross's word but um when you do such a thing what happens in the mind of that child what how is how is that child then living their life like how are they finding pleasure how are they identifying what's normal and what's acceptable, you know? And so we have a, a, a duty as adults. We have a, a duty as individuals who are responsible for these young minds um, to ensure that they're safe, to ensure that they're protected, you know? And so I, I really do understand, you know, when we talk about other people and even in my podcast, there are lots of people out there who've been sexually assaulted, who've been raped, who've experimented with boys and girls, who've maybe even engaged in bestiality, who don't end up going and killing people. I think the key here is um, knowing that when, when someone else is engaging in that behavior, there's absolutely nothing normal about it. <laughs> there is absolutely nothing normal about 100. Like you, you're better off. I mean, with all the toys and stuff that's available at Hot Topics and Spencer's, come on, you know, people can find something else rather than killing and tormenting a chicken. Um, well, the crazy part too, though, is that not only during this time was homosexuality looked down upon, right? A woman's sexuality was looked down upon too. And that's the hard part too, is like, like nowadays I feel like people, you know, can find a kink or, you know, something that they're into that maybe wasn't available 20 years ago. Like, you know, where you can find a woman or a man who's willing to be su submissive to you 24 seven or, you know, whatever, whatever your kink is to kind of get that instead of hiding who you are, you know, you're like that you're be, you're able to express yourself. Yes. And I mean, that's the thing, too. I think you're absolutely right. We're talking about a time when um, and I, I think back to uh, I think it was June Scott that you talked about the 26 year old that 
Arthur cut from throat to vagina oh, and he basically God, yeah. cut her open like an animal. And I think you'd said in the podcast that I think that was the woman who had laughed at him because he couldn't get his erection or, you know, he wasn't hard. And it's because I think there was this idea that women was just, just supposed to sit there and be quiet. You know, um, you don't, don't embarrass me. I'm the man, you know, know your place. And so here. That ego, his, his ego was so yes, fragile and yes. it was so hinged yes. on his erection. And when he couldn't get it, then it was like it shattered his exactly. whole world. Everything that he was, was rooted in his you know, his connection to his member. And, you know, and I think people were laughing at me on Twitter when I called it a manitalia. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> that was fucking hilarious, by the way. <laughs> I stole that from Key and Peel. Wendell, um, talked about his manitalia. <laughs> but, whatever, um, <laughs> wherever you got it from was hilarious. <laughs> I really do. F- and Arthur Cross would have probably killed me for calling his member a manitalia. <laughs> I really feel like he was, everything was connected because you see this kid, I was shocked listening, listening to your podcast episode and listening to you talk about the fact that from a very young age, he was already engaging in sex. He was masturbating on a regular basis. And, you know, I think people don't realize like it's very different from a, you know, teenage, I know teenage boys masturbate regularly, right? A lot, like a a lot. But this guy, for us to say in that society that this guy was masturbating a lot, by teenage boy standards, I mean, this has to have been constant. This man's hand must have been raw. And so sex <laughs> is literally on his mind, you know? And so you've got someone whose entire identity is rooted in sex and their connection to sex. And um, when someone's entire goal in life is to pleasure themselves, everyone around them becomes a means to an end. That is just a body with a hole in it. And I'm going to utilize it, you know, to get my pleasure. He was a sick, 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 sick guy, you know? Um, And I loved, you hit us with what? Your episode hit us with like a four piece part to him. Cannibal, a serial killer. Um, Oh my gosh. A a war veteran. That's, and that's the crazy part too. And I, I, uh, war, war is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. I wish, I wish it's, it's an unfortunate part of, uh, of the world and I, I don't get political on here too often but I know the world's crazy right now so I really hope everybody is staying safe um, but with that being said it's it's one of those things that war I think desensitizes people especially people who are already showing sociopathic tendencies of the, that emotion that's not there they don't give a fuck about anybody else except for themselves and I think that that definitely kind of like that was the final nail in, in that coffin to be able, for him to be able to go out and kill people. You know yes, what I mean? 100%. You know, um, there was a when we were in Iraq and I, I can't remember the names of the soldiers who were involved, but I, I think do you, do you recall when these individuals were now? Um, facing the consequences of the actions for basically piling Iraqis on on top of one another, and you know, it was and and it's it's was so far from it now, but it's crazy that this has happened for so long. And a couple of days ago, I want to say it was a week or so ago, I was um, reading an old article about a soldier who, um, oh gosh, I wish I remembered his name, but there was a soldier, and he. 
him and his buddies basically saw this beautiful girl um, in the midst of war, right? And so they were, I, I think, kind of bored. And they said, you know, we need a little bit of action. Let's go over to her house. And this actually happened. I mean, he was um, he was put through the criminal justice system for his actions, but they raped this girl, they killed her family, and they burned her house down, you know? And you were so in sync right now because as I was planning this episode, I didn't know if it was okay for me to bring it up, but I really felt like that situation with the Vietnam, the Vietnamese women, um, the one with the woman who was shot in the head and then he decapitated her and stuck her head on a pole, and then the second woman who he then raped, um, I wrote, and I'm so sorry, I'm such a little nerd with my notes, but I wrote the humane manner in which the Vietnamese women were raped and killed shows you how war is so much more than a resolution of national issues. It can provide an opportunity for sick and twisted individuals to fulfill the violent fantasies without repercussion. And I think that's the thing. People get so lost in the, the bigger issues, right? We're fighting, we're, we're invading this. And meanwhile, when all of these bigger chess pieces are moving and these bombs being thrown and, you know, you've got one sick person who's been waiting for a chance to slaughter people, um, and justified by saying that they're doing it in the name of their country. Um, we empower these individuals. To, and yeah, I, I, it's scary. War um, is a scary time because while these bigger issues are happening, there are some very sick, twisted people who are getting their, um, you know, the, 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 what would you call it? How do I say this without sounding completely? Getting, getting their rocks off? They're getting their rocks off. They're getting their rocks off. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. It's difficult to not connect this to what's happening in the world right now, right? So right. it's unfortunate. And that's the, that's the crazy part, too, is that, like, they wore... But the Vietnam War was disgusting in itself, though. Like, America totally brutalized the country of people. You know what I mean? And it was okay. And and so, I, I don't know, man. It, it was disgusting. Like, I don't... He... He just used it as an excuse. I can't remember. I just covered somebody else, and he did the same thing. I think it was John Eric Armstrong, I think. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm looking he, forward to hearing that episode. Um, no, it's uh, it's out already. It came out, like, I don't know, a month ago. Oh, my um, gosh. Okay, so clearly I need to catch up because I'm like, oh, my gosh, is, <laughs> I need to listen to that episode. I will be listening to that. I think he went to, uh, I think he was in Desert Storm, I think, if I remember right, or Iraq. I don't remember, but it was the same thing. Like, Or no, he was in the Navy, and it was in like a, a, an Asian country or something, and he's brutalizing sex workers. And it's like, you know, I think that they just use their patriotism in quotes to give them that excuse to completely just like hurt somebody and it's ridiculous you yeah, know what 100%. i mean 100 and you know what i think i think at the end of your episode you talked about how he was um i i think he was trying to justify his actions right like where did he learn this from and he talked about it was so horrifying to hear um the two trees and them binding this woman's legs to the trees and kind of splitting her open and then watching her, you know, torn apart as they untied the trees. Um, you know, if, if these types of situations are happening, which we know these things are happening, we're allowing these individuals to come back with these dark desires that are now no longer being 
um, fulfilled. And obviously, we're not saying that all of our military men and women come back and slaughter people or people slaughter people without justification. But um, this is the reality that it can be a little hiding spot for really, really disgusting human beings to, to fulfill their fantasies. It was such this case. I mean, there were so many layers to this guy and the eating, um, the cooking and the eating of people and going back to his victims. Like, Kevin, I don't know if you've ever left um, meat to thong. A dead body or like, right, something <laughs> rotting. Yeah, yeah. If, it's if not you, exactly appetizing. 100%. I know a friend of mine who left a piece, you know, a pizza outside. Um, him and his wife left their pizza out on the stove. And, you know, he was still craving pizza the next morning. He didn't put it in the, in the fridge. He had a couple of slices the next day and got violently ill. Arthur Cross was oh. decomposing <laughs> bodies and coming back to them to get a little right. taste. My God. My God. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. And the whole, well, I don't know how anybody eats anybody to begin with. <laughs> I, I mean, like physically, like cutting people yes, up and fucking yes. eating them. Oh my God. It's that just grosses me out. Like mm -hmm. I'm so weird and like weird about uh, expiration <laughs> dates as it is. So it's like, <laughs> I can't even imagine like eating somebody, but, um, it's but just scary. the mere fact what he was getting off on mutilating women's private parts. And I swear, I think that comes from his unwillingness to accept his sexuality. I think there was a part of him that was a homosexual man, but he was trying to suppress it. And I think his way of kind of getting away from that, those sex you know those homosexual urges was to mutilate a woman's body and it's he wasn't it's finding gross. pleasure in that it was almost like i don't know how to describe it but it's this idea in my mind kind of like you draw something on a piece of paper and then you automatically start scratching it out you know i feel like it was this kind of like this deep rooted self-hatred you know that stemmed from his inability to be himself and i wonder too even if he was a homosexual man if he would been you know if he would have been able to have healthy sexual relationships if that was ruined from the point of his childhood and the the trauma that he'd experienced with the guy who held the, the knife to his throat would he have been a jeffrey dahmer who would have been killing his sexual partners anyway you know you never know um there's some deep, deep psychological issues with Arthur Cross. And it's so unfortunate that so many lives were taken. And what I've noticed with a lot of these guys is they, so many roads lead to sex, to sex workers. It's, it's such an unfortunate situation because a lot of these women who do end up in that position, you know, while many women are able to find healthy employment through sex work and are very proud of their work, there are a lot of family members and mothers who are desperate for a job and, um, you know, don't have people looking out for them. Like, you know, the boyfriend who didn't report his girlfriend missing for three, three weeks because he was like, sometimes I don't hear from her. And so after Cross, um, Shaw Cross killed her, um, no one really knew she was missing. You know, she was dead. And so it, it, these guys always end up going after the most marginalized, most um, uh, forgotten in society because like when Shawcross was a bully, you know, they go after people who they feel like they can exert control over the children. Um, you know, uh, the sex workers, minorities, drug addicts, people who are overlooked by society. And I think it's society's responsibility to make other people our business, <laughs> you know? Um, well, how about the fact that he went to prison for killing mm -hmm. two children? Yeah. He got a plea deal mm -hmm. for, 
one of the murders and only got charged with manslaughter mm-hmm. and only served 15 years. It's insane. He should have been behind bars for a very long time. How that happens, it blows your mind. But again, so so <laughs> from a from a prosecutor standpoint, sure. why would that something like that happen? You know, I had a case where um, there was a uh, a father and his daughter, and um, they had given the, the 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 father, you know, his grandchild, um, a laffy taffy in quotes. It was a THC laced gummy. Um, it was a THC laced uh, drug, and you know, this ended up being a um, we call it an Ewok in my state, which is a, an endangering the welfare of a child. And so we had two felony cases of a grandfather and daughter who were charged because this child, the, the, the baby ended up having seizures and, you know, was taken to the hospital as a result of that THC in her system. And so when we were finally getting this case to trial and, you know, was now in the, in, in the uh, main court process, um, we had the grandfather basically saying, I am willing to plead to these charges. I took responsibility. It was me who did this. Um, I'm willing to take the charges and I'm willing to serve the time, but I'm only willing to do that if the uh, the charges against my daughter are dropped. She didn't have anything to do with this. you know. In those cases, I think from an outside standpoint, you think, no, both of them need to be held accountable. Both of them need to be tried equally. But at the end of the day, then you've got a situation where You've got a drawn out process. You've got a trial potentially where you've got a kid testifying. You've got um, a situation where you're traumatizing a child. You're depriving them of a healthy situation because, you know, they're in limbo while the trial, the court process is still pending. And so I'd imagine in a situation like Arthur Cross's and that you have this guy confessing on his own accord. I think I read in an article that the, the, the second victim I know that there's still so much information out there, but the second victim, he he was caught because um, she was seen. He was the last person she was she was seen with, and so um, now you've got this guy confessing to two. You don't have enough evidence, right? You've got his word, you know, which could at any point be withdrawn, right? His his testimony and his his statement could be withdrawn, and he could say, I never actually did anything to that kid. I just said that because I read it in the news that this kid was missing or whatever. But you have an actual admission of guilt on the one charge, um, the one homicide against the, the, the last victim. And then you've got another case where it's either one, you get him on both, and he says, well, if you're going to get me on both, I'm going, I'm going to trial. And you might potentially not have enough to get him on the second case anyway. So if you have a guilty plea, you save time and process. You don't have to then go through the court process. You don't have to drag the victim's families through this traumatizing event. You have an admission. And at the end of the day, ideally, you have the person save, spending at least a little time in court. It's not ideal, but I think sometimes in some jurisdictions, in some um prosecutor's offices, the, the the goal is to get the person behind bars, whatever that looks like. And it comes at a cost because, you know, a lot of the time, some of these people are not rehabilitated, you know? And so, you know, it, it, it's, it's difficult to say what exactly all went into that. Perhaps, you know, sometimes with smaller events and smaller cases, when you're dealing with plea deals, a person will have a mental health evaluation as a part of the plea deal. They'll have a sexual offender type of course or anger management training, whatever it is that the victim's family would agree to. You know, there's a lot of layers that sometimes come to this this plea agreement where people are like, well, okay, you know, I just want to put this behind me. Just 
I don't want to go to trial. I don't want to have this all brought up. Just let him take the plea deal. You know, you never know what all went into that. But um, unfortunately, in this case, him being behind bars was not a lesson. It only, I think, fueled the desire for him to continue to do what he'd been doing before, but on a much on, on, on a um, much larger scale. And that's the crazy part too. Is is so, is like you the emotional side, right? And that's what that's that's why I asked the question that I did because there's there's always that emotional side of like, how the fuck did this guy get out? Like that's so infuriating. You know, but at the same time, you got to look at it, you know, from that perspective of like, well, at least we can get him for one. And, you know, hopefully he'll serve some time and and not be an asshole when he gets out. But unfortunately, that's just when he turned to, you know, victimizing and brutalizing sex workers. Exactly. And that's the thing, you know, and we've got a constant battle um, out there right now in the criminal justice system of people, you know, there are a lot of people who are pushing for rehabilitation, right? Like emptying out the prisons as far as there's, there's some arguments that are made about, you know, we've privatized prisons. We're making money off of people being in prison and rotting in prison. How about focusing on rehabilitation? Okay. So you give someone a 15 year sentence. You hope that during that time they've learned their lesson, but like, you know, I recently covered a case a couple of weeks ago on Anthony Sowell the Cleveland Strangler, and this individual spent time in prison for sexual assault, and at no point did he actually take part in any of those rehabilitative courses. So um, these people are coming out into the community, um, sometimes maybe remorseful, you know, sometimes not. And um, we don't have any resources for these individuals to get the help that some of them might need because, you know, we're not funding um, these types of institutions correctly. And I think because people kind of torn through this battle of you commit the crime, you do the time. Well, what happens when that person is outside of that, that period of, in quotes, doing the time? They become our problem again. We have to fund um, local community uh organizations, people who can help keep these people on track because there might be individuals, there might be Arthur Crosses who could potentially be stopped from continuing down the path that they're on because they have a mentor, they have a group of people similar to an AAA an AA meeting where they're being held accountable. What are those urges? They have therapy, they have medication, whatever it is. And it's so much more than just what happens inside those prison cells because you know as we do know when you have a bunch of like-minded individuals not a lot of times will good things come out of that you have a bunch of sexual offenders together in a prison (laughs) i don't know people could be sharing tips on how to get away with murder or how to get away with you know hey man this is you want to you want to dump a body i know a place called the genesee river you know um (laughs) that's my spot you find that spot too you know i like your mafia accent that's exactly what i was trying to do here kevin i I was trying to sell this for it this is the prisoner that I'm thinking about. His name's Frank, and he's got a place, and he's going to tell you about that place so you can drop the body out. He's got a cigar in his hand, too, He's right? got a cigar in his, in his hand. He's got his, his, his pants are sticking down, and he's going to tell you where to drop a body out. You know, so unfortunately, I'm a terrible person as far as accents, but I'll just keep, I'll keep using these accents. But I'm you, here for it, man. <laughs> thank you, Kevin. But you see what I'm saying? This is such a broad issue. It is, there's so many layers to criminal justice that go beyond, you know, and we've got people who are committing these crimes as juveniles who then go back into the adult system. And then after that, they get out of prison and then they're, they're re um, committing crimes because like we know, they're not accepted into communities. They're living in some of these, you know, parks, um, 
out in the middle of nowhere, they're homeless or whatever, and they're resorting to crime. So this is a societal issue. This is a societal problem. Serial killers, killers, yes, we might not be responsible for making them do these things. We might not be giving them the knives and the guns, but we've created environments where they can continue to do this when they're released from prison. So it's difficult. It's a very difficult situation, and it's not going to be easy to resolve, but perhaps we can start by stopping these killers before they start killing, right? Um, Parents, family members, it was interesting to me that, you know, um, uh, Arthur um, Shawcross was born, you know, was raised in a single family household, you know, a single mother household, because we've seen with a lot of serial killers that there's this animosity and hatred for their mother, you know, especially those strong, aggressive moms, um, you know, I think it was described, described in a news article I read once that he had a very strong mom and we see that with a lot of these serial killers they had a domineering mother and you wonder too how much does that play into things as far as the hatred of women as well you know are they penalizing their moms you know I found it very interesting when you talked about how uh he had his mom as his inner being I guess as another personality in himself and then this other spiritual character and this goes back to what I was saying about the Michael Myers (laughs) Halloween movie, because in the second movie, Halloween 2, as he's killing, you've got his mother and his young Michael Myers. Can you tell I was obsessed with that movie? I was obsessed with that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I keep tying every case I read. No, my God, that's Halloween, Michael Myers. But um, you have this, this, again, is this person really taking accountability for their actions or are they blaming it on everything else? This weird little woman voice that he did. Can you imagine that you have a grown ass 300 pound man and he's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, oh, Arthur, don't you know, like, come on, Arthur, you're not going to get a couple of years shaved off, shaved off because of your little. So these guys are manipulative. They're very intelligent. They're strategic. That's how they get away with this for such a long time. Um, they blend in, they know how to act normal, and then when they're caught, they kind of either, one, become very boastful of their crimes, but all aware that they don't want to spend the rest of their lives behind bars. These are, it's such an interesting, Arthur Cross specifically, Shaw Cross is such a fascinating case of how horrific a person can become, how demonic, I don't know what other word we can use, how vile, evil a human being can become if we let them. Um, it's shocking. He he really had a full resume. How about the fact that he was able to profit from his artwork? Oh my gosh. So this is an interesting thing. You know, when I heard you say he made 500 bucks, <laughs> wow, wow, wee, wow. I mean, I don't, I, I, I think it, I read that his artwork was very kind of bright and some of them were butterflies. It is demented. It is horrifying, primarily because this is someone who slaughtered people and killed people, you know, and I mean, in a sense, bathed in people's blood and now gets to go and draw little butterflies and shit and, and sell it for $500. So what, he can buy a bunch of ramen, uh, you know, in the prisons, you know, what's He's that fucking prison balling? Yeah. Toilet wine, you know, and, and who knows what he'd be doing with that money. Is he getting favors, sexual favors from other inmates? Is What exactly is he doing out there? What is he funding? You know, what is that money being used for, you know, and where are the lessons learned? This is what I hate. Like I, I read another, another um, article recently on on Reddit about a a kid 
who had committed a really horrible crime. And as he was writing to his fans, he would sign as, you know, his, his whatever the media killer name that he was given, the killer nickname. And so these guys, because we've made them, again, it goes back to the sexualization of, of true crime. We gave Arthur Shawcross the ability to become a, 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 an artist. We gave him the ability to become a celebrity because people become so fucking fascinated with these killers. And, you know, they want, they love the celebrity. They love this importance, this, you know, the attention. Arthur wanted this attention. And this was the final stab at the victims. Like, you know, look at me. I'm still this important guy that people care about. And the biggest, the best penalty that we could give criminals, um, homicidal maniacs is to completely ignore them obviously to talk about these cases so we can learn from them but not to print t-shirts with their faces on them and to write them letters and say oh you know i, I i'm going to change you i'm going please to please you know. cut my vagina exactly off. cut my vagina need my vagina you know <laughs> no susan no that's, no, no that's no. a whole new yes. definition of eating out it is a very different <laughs> definition and it does not sound like it's a tasty treat my god kevin we all know it's not a tasty treat what was going on can you imagine like there have been times when i've gone to a restaurant and maybe a friend of mine's ordered an appetizer and i'm like eh, that looks interesting do i want to buy no i can't imagine author shawcross sitting in front of a dead body and thinking should i, mm. can I do i want in? the vagina or right? the leg oh like which God. one today and i've been to that area of new york there are plenty of cows and other things but perhaps he was nervous because he did potentially ejaculate in a ton of animals maybe he didn't want to <laughs> eat the, the animals that this guy i will never be able to wrap my mind as i was just thinking about this case it's like i would never ever be able to wrap my mind around someone like arthur you know and my whole podcast is just rooted in trying to understand what makes these people the way they are I don't think we will ever understand people like Arthur. And that's what's so terrifying about them. You know, they're walking, they're, they're, they're moving around us right now. And we will never know what's going to end up, you know, causing that change, that switch that takes them from the chicken to cu cutting and slicing up a human being. You know, it's terrifying, absolutely mortifying. Um, but this is why it's important to have these conversations so that we know that this is out there. It's real. And we as a society need to be cognizant of that and, you know, protect ourselves from that. Because, you know, if you fall victim to one of these people, you're going to be another individual who's added to that list of 11 or 10 or 12, however many people are then um, confessed to you by, by a killer. S scary. Very scary. Very, very scary. I thank you for coming on. <laughs> this has been, you are an amazing guest. And oh I my gosh. We do this again. We and need before you. we go, do you have any more final thoughts on this guy before we get out of here? I, you know, I think that there is a documentary on Netflix or Amazon Prime. I forget which one. So I plan to watch that too. But what I will say to your listeners, if this is the first time you're hearing about this case, I would. 1000% recommend that you listen to um, the jury room podcast, the Genesee river killer episode. It will blow your mind. It is a heavy, I felt heavy after like I needed to take a nap after listening to it's a heavy, heavy episode. But again, 
Um, what will you gain from it? Well, you gain an understanding that human beings are not always what they seem and, um, you know, what to look out for. And if you're potentially thinking about dating, being in a relationship with you're male or female, I think this is an, an important episode to examine for yourself to understand where human beings are coming from um, and, and how a child can can go from an innocent bystander uh to to a horrifying killer so i would uh, my my parting thoughts to your listeners are please check out that episode listen to it rate and review it and encourage other people to listen and then come back to this conversation because um i think it's important for us to continue to discuss and dissect these cases not human beings and not chickens or you know for sexual reasons yes please leave vaginas alone (laughs) if you're listening to this podcast and you've been thinking about eating out in in a murderous way don't do it don't, Don't do, do it. it. <laughs> well, before we get out of here, I have one question to ask. Do you mind answering before we go? Of course. I do not mind at all. If you could be one sandwich condiment, what would you be and why? Honey mustard. Of course, honey mustard. Because it is, oh my gosh, Kevin, it is honey and mustard. You know, mustard has got a little bit of like a tartness to it, a little bit of like a bitter. And I'm, I'm so sorry for giving your listeners that ASMR, those with headphones heard that but then you've got the honey in there. So I feel like, and you know, sometimes people think I'm fake, but I feel like that honey is from this. I I have a natural naivety. You know, I love people. I love um, connecting with people. I'm genuinely, I I feel like one of those people who always wakes up on the the right side of the bed. (laughs) But um, at the same time, life has also given me the mustard side. You know, I hear about these cases, also my line of work, things like that. And I think um, honey mustard is a great combination. It's good to still be innocent and sweet and kind and loving, but also aware that tartness of the mustard in there. I think we should all strive to be honey mustards, not overly sweet and naive where you make yourself vulnerable and not overly tart and bitter and angry at the world, but just that sweet combination that, you know, allows you to still enjoy life while being cognizant of the fact that the world is real and scary, but things will get better. <laughs> and plug your podcast. I forgot to say that first, but that's fine. Tell them no, again where they can find you at. I appreciate we'll it. Well, I am the host of a podcast, a true crime podcast called How to Spot a Killer. And, you know, as Kevin knows, we have so many true crime podcasts out there. Um, I think that it's so important to discuss red flags and so we are not only going to analyze the facts in my podcast we look at the red flags we look at the um the escalating behavior we look at the family members we look at the impact on the victims we try to find and when i say we i'm talking about me but you know what i'm saying um (laughs) i try to highlight things that will hopefully make ensure that victims didn't die in vain what can we learn from these stories and how can we allow them to continue to be honored by not falling, you know, in the footsteps, unfortunately, and ending up as victims ourselves. So please come and take a listen. If you like what you're hearing today, join me um, over at A How to Spot a Killer on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, Lynette, thanks for coming on. <laughs> this has been a wonderful conversation, and I hope, we do, I hope we can do it again soon. Please, Kevin, absolutely. And this time I'll have my video camera working so you can look <laughs> at my animated reactions and my talking as I'm trying to describe cutting up a, a vagina. So, <laughs> Well, on that note, have a good day. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kevin. You too. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows. 
lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. Addiction, noun, the fact or condition of being addicted to a particular substance, thing, or activity. An overwhelming compulsion. What makes us fall into the world of drugs and addiction? Why can some of us dabble in the illicit and walk away unscathed, while others of us travel downward into the deep spiral of addiction? Humans have always had a fascination with the allure of getting high. Our obsession with drugs isn't a new societal epidemic, but one that has actually has its roots dating back to the ancient days of mankind. While the drugs we utilize to try and get high nowadays may have shifted, our fascination with the darkened path of addiction has not changed. If you or a loved one have been struggling with addiction or have in the past and would like to share your story, Please feel free to reach out to me via social media or through email at juryroompodcast at gmail.com. This is Addicted, a Jury Room production. Coming soon to wherever you listen to this podcast.